Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hey, this is Josh Wood, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This podcast simply couldn't happen without listener support. There are many costs associated with the production and storage of this show we all love, and for as little as $1 a month, you can help keep it going. For more information, please go to historygoesbump.com and click the Support the Show tab. And if you want to find our spooky little cult, or family, sorry, on Facebook, just search for Spooktacular Crew, click Join, and one of us will let you in. I really hope to see you in there. And again, please consider supporting the show. Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 188th episode of the History Goes Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we have a location that was suggested to us by Sasha Wolf. She loves Santa Cruz, and she was telling me about how supernatural this area is and about the strange history that is in this area. And one of the locations that happens to be here is Rispin Mansion. This is a place that basically has been abandoned for, I don't know, 50 years or so. And it never has really been a place where a lot of people have actually called it home. Apparently, there's some haunting going on. So we'll get into talking about that and sharing that with all of you. Before we do that, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Jody, I hope that's how it's said. It's J-O-D-E. Hey, Jody. Christine. Hey, Christine. Linda. Hello, Linda. Ursula and Jeremy. Hello, Ursula and Jeremy. Casey. And Casey. Mandy. Hello, Mandy. Ron. Hi, Ron. Melissa. Hello, Melissa. And Gail. Hello, Gail. And Denise, I just wanted to point out that that bumper at the beginning by Josh, one of our administrators over at the Spooktacular crew, that music is his. He did that himself. Awesome stuff. And now for this moment in oddity. Timothy Riley is the director of the National Churchill Museum in Fulton, Missouri. Recently, he stumbled across an essay written by Winston Churchill in 1939 that explored a very unique topic, that being alien life. Britain had just entered World War II, which makes it even stranger that Churchill would have focused on pondering the existence of aliens. The essay was 11 pages entitled, Are We Alone in the Universe? Churchill reasoned like a scientist that if we had everything needed for life on Earth, then in a vast universe there had to be other planets that held all the components to sustain life as well. Churchill wrote, I am not sufficiently conceited to think that my son is the only one with a family of planets. I, for one, am not so immensely impressed by the success we are making of our civilization here that I'm prepared to think we are the only spot in this immense universe which contains living, thinking creatures, or that we are the highest type of mental and physical development which has ever appeared in the vast compass of space and time. The fact that the future Prime Minister of Britain thought enough about aliens 
that he actually put pen to paper about the topic at a time of war and at a time when such things were not normally discussed certainly was odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now this month in history. In the month of March, on the sixth day in 1745, Kazimierz Pulaski was born in Poland. Pulaski fought against the Russians for Polish independence. When that failed, he was driven into exile. He later immigrated to the colonies in America upon Benjamin Franklin's recommendation. He took his drive to fight for independence and turned it toward helping the Americans during the Revolutionary War. He became a general in the Continental Army and even saved the life of George Washington. He is considered one of the fathers of the American Calvary as he devoted time to reforming the entire Calvary. He led a daring charge against the British forces at the Battle of Savannah, in which he was mortally wounded. Chicago observes the official holiday, Casimir Pulaski Day, on the first Monday in March in his honor. And a fun fact here is Fort Pulaski, which is up in Georgia, we've actually visited and that was named in his honor. Rizman Mansion is located in Capitola, California, in the beautiful and supernaturally infused Santa Cruz area. The history of the mansion is intriguing, and just part of that is the fact that a rich real estate baron built it and then went on to be buried in a pauper's grave. Everyone from nuns to hippies have called this place home, and the once grand estate has become an abandoned eyesore. But it is not completely abandoned. Rumors of hauntings swirl around the property. And legends and hauntings seem to be everywhere one looks in Santa Cruz. We will share some of these strange tales as we explore the history and hauntings of the Rispin Mansion. Santa Cruz County is one of the original counties in California and dates back to when California gained statehood. A Spanish pueblo there was called Branchaforte, and so the county first had that name, but it was later changed to Santa Cruz, which means Holy Cross. Santa Cruz is in an area steeped in the supernatural, and it's built in the middle of a floodplain. Not the best place to build, Denise. No, not the best place to build, but it's one that I really want to go visit. It has seen its fair share of tragedy. There also was the exploiting of Chinese laborers and construction built on top of Native American burial grounds. This is all added to the supernatural energy that's built up here. In fact, every summer, a thick fog rolls in, and legend claims that this is the energy of spirits from the past who have been wronged coming back into the land. That would be kind of spooky and kind of cool to see. I know there's a movie out there called The Fog. Maybe that's where they got the inspiration. Oh, I saw that movie. That creeped me out. I don't like The Fog. The native burial grounds more than likely belonged to the Olon tribe. They had many legends about the area. One of them was about a sycamore grove off what is now Highway 9. They claimed that a spider lived in this grove and it wove webs that would entangle anyone walking through the forest who harbored dark secrets. The nearby Redwood Forest has a legend about another type of creature, a giant snake. There you go, Diane. The snake would kill indiscriminately. A young Olon man defied the rules of the tribe and the elders called him to answer for his insubordination. The punishment was extreme and final. 
he was sentenced to die. Just before they executed him, he cursed the land. No one knows for sure, but many wonder if this curse led to the invasion by another tribe named the Yachikumni. They were from the Stockton area. They considered the Olong tribe a weak group, and they came through and slaughtered as many as they could. So many were massacred that it is said that no one can walk across Santa Cruz without transversing upon an area of ground touched by bones or gore. Either the curse, this massacre, or both have led to further catastrophes. A fire ripped through in 1894, and everything was reduced to ashes. Severe earthquakes also plagued the area. In 1898, a local powder works exploded. Windows in town were blown out up to three miles away. Nine of the Irish emigrants working in the factory were killed, and they were buried in a mass grave at the Oddfellow Cemetery. And by some horrible twist of fate, a young bride had just stepped out on her porch, and a huge rock that was thrown by the explosion hit her in the head and she was killed. It's hard to peg down, but there were other deaths in town associated with the explosion. An article in the Star Tribune from April 27, 1898, details what happened. Three explosions about 5.15 yesterday afternoon at the California Powder Works caused a greater loss of life than any of the previous accidents in the history of these works. The wildest rumors are prevalent regarding the number of killed and injured, and the exact number cannot be ascertained before morning. It is known that seven were killed and four seriously injured as follows, and it lists their names. The first heavy shock from the explosion was heard for miles around and was separately followed by two lighter shocks. The smoke from the works arose in such dense volumes that it was impossible for a time to perceive the extent of the damage that had been caused by the explosion. It was said that the fire was spreading to the main magazine and that it was in imminent danger. The bugle call was accordingly sounded for the members of the California Naval Reserve, who responded promptly, hurrying to the mills and assisting the Corps of Firefighters already on the grounds. As nearly as can be learned, the primary cause of the disaster was the explosion of the cotton plant. The igniting of this plant caused the fire to spread to the adjoining brush and small buildings and was then communicated to the powder mill. Well, you really don't want to put a cotton mill next to a powder mill. That has got to be insane. It's a combination for the perfect storm. Where there was located the houses of the employees of the works. The employees and Naval Reserve boys worked heroically to prevent the fire from spreading to the smokeless powder plant. The scarcity of water retarded the work of the Voluntary Fire Brigade. Shovels and other tools were used instead of water in fighting the flames. No doubt is entertained among the officials of the works that the explosion was due to an accident. Extraordinary precautions had been taken to prevent treachery, and no well-informed man entertained the opinion that the accident was the work of a Spanish spy, as was at first suggested. First, they weren't quite sure that this was, they thought maybe it was on purpose, apparently. It is not thought the explosion will interfere with the manufacture of smokeless powder for the government. The fire is now under control and all immediate danger is past. None of the plants making powder for the fulfillment of government contracts are injured. In addition to the gun cotton plant, most of the cottages occupied by the employees were burned, so they all lost their homes too. Wow. The ghost of William Waddell is said to wander Santa Cruz, apparently looking for his arm. It would seem that a mother bear tore it off in the 1870s when he hiked too close to her cubs. The arm was buried in a meadow. 
Waddell died sometime later, and it was decided that his arm needed to be located so that all of him could be buried together. The group was unable to locate the arm. Part of this tale claims that the arm itself haunts the place and manifests in small thefts. It is said that the arm has sticky fingers. We have a woman in white that wanders Santa Cruz, and that white dress is actually a wedding dress. This woman was a mail-order bride who found herself married to a very cruel man. She'd arrived from Massachusetts, and shortly after the wedding, her horrific abuse began. Her husband would tell her to put on her wedding dress every night, and then he would beat her mercilessly. She decided that she needed to leave him. When he learned of her plans, he beat her to death and then beheaded her. He then set the house on fire with her body inside. Throughout the decades, the apparition of a woman in white has been reported at the neighborhood where she used to live. This is not some residual haunting featuring a woman just wandering the street. This spirit is very angry. She curses and slaps people. One story claims that she threw an axe at an old drunken town. People are warned to steer clear of this apparition. You can see why she'd be angry, though. Holy cow. Oh, man, what a horrible life. You come out here thinking, wow, I'm going to start over new with this guy, and, and that's the way you get treated. On episode 28 about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, we featured the story behind the movie The Birds as a moment in oddity. Alfred Hitchcock had lived in the Santa Cruz area for a brief time. There is even a hotel there that inspired his image of the Bates Motel. It was a true event that occurred in Santa Cruz that inspired Hitchcock's The Birds. On the evening of August 18th in 1961, hundreds of Shearwater seabirds seemed to go crazy and they slammed their bodies into businesses and homes. People who were outside were attacked as well. The next day, two truckloads of the dead animals were collected and destroyed. Theories of what caused the birds to act this way ranged from some kind of toxin in the air to an unusual fog. Perhaps the fog of the angry spirits? Shearwaters still sometimes have carried on these attacks into our most recent history. Located in the center of Santa Cruz on the west coast is the city of Capitola. The city was originally known as Sequel Landing, which was named for the Sequel Creek. The settlement was built on the local produce and lumber industry, and the wharf at Sequel Landing served as a way to export the material. Frederick A. Hinn owned property near the wharf, and he built a seaside resort in 1869 that he later leased to Samuel A. Hall. Hall called the area Camp Capitola. No one knows where Hall got the name Capitola, but the city is the oldest beach resort on the West Coast. In 1919, a man named Henry Allen Rispin moved nearby and bought the city. Rispin's parents were English, and they had relocated to Ontario in Canada. The couple ran a ticket agency there, but they died when Rispin was very young. His older brother raised him until Rispin left home at 14. There seems to be no record that Rispin finished high school and he did not attend college. He worked odd jobs in lumber and the railroad. He set his sights on America and he moved to New York where he became a manager at the Savoy Theater. It was the first of many jobs in the theater. He directed productions and even acted at the McKinsey Opera House in 1896. He then went on to manage the Grand Opera House, and after appearing in a play there, the New York News wrote, Everybody is talking of Mr. Henry Rispin's impersonation of Dick Chivy at the Opera House. The manager of the Grand made his first dramatic effort. That he scored a decided success is recognized by the critics. Rispin was in his late 20s when Winfield Blake introduced him to his sister, Annette. She was a beautiful college graduate and nine years younger than Rispin. 
She also was the daughter of a wealthy oil baron, Isaac Blake. Blake had struck it rich in Utah in 1875, and he started Continental Oil, which was one of the first such businesses in the West. Blake created the tanker car that carried petroleum products by rail. He went on to merger with the Rockefeller family and other investors, and Conoco was born. Rispin left the theater for the oil business. He and Annette moved to San Francisco and got married. Their son Alan was born shortly before or after the wedding. So a little bit of scandal there. Rispin worked for his father-in-law managing an oil field in Santa Maria in 1908. You'll recall that we talked about the Santa Maria Inn on one of our episodes. He moved to Ohio for a time to work a field there in 1914 and in 1916. At some point after that, he and Annette moved to Denver. In 1918, the couple moved back to San Francisco, and they lived at the Fairmont Hotel there. Rispin did not move to Capitola when he bought it in 1919. Rispin wrote in 1923 of this time, About five years ago, I was run down in health, tired out, etc., so moved to California, purchased the town of Capitola, which was one of the most beautiful spots in California, and without doubt, the most delightful, where one can enjoy life outdoors 12 months out of the year. I built one of the most beautiful homes in California here. The result is that I feel 20 years younger than I did five years ago, and while Capitola is a good-paying proposition, as we own not only the town, hotels, stores, amusements, etc., but also own the waterworks system for the entire district, the electric light, gas plants, etc., but I am nervous to get back into the oil business, it being the business that I know better than anything else. Hence, I am looking for a producing oil property that has not been entirely drilled up so that I can get back to the harness again and would consider trading Capitola with everything that goes with it, also my home, for a good oil property. So a lot of people are probably thinking, wow, so this guy, he's got all this great stuff going on in Capitola, but he's so desperate to get back into oil that he's willing to give that all up and to sell it to somebody. Well, I think he was really just trying to offload it. (laughs) Which is generally the case when somebody's that anxious to get rid of their life's work. (laughs) Exactly. I'm so desperate to get back into the oil business. I want to let you have this at a really great deal. This quote-unquote most beautiful home that Risbon was referencing was a four-story, 22-room mansion he had built. George McCrea was an architect that the Rispins had hired to remodel a home in San Francisco, and they asked him to design the mansion. His specialty was Spanish colonial revival. Construction began in 1921, and it cost around a million dollars in today's dollars to develop the property. Rispin never intended to live in the home, but rather to use it to attract people to come to Capitola and then invest in the area by buying lots. He whined and dined the wealthy there. Perhaps because he did not live on the property, Rispin failed to keep up with the water and sewage systems that he was just talking about in what Denise was reading there. So the fact that he says, we own the waterwork system and the electric lights and the gas plants, well, that's great if you own it as long as you keep it running, but he wasn't doing that. There was no police or fire protection either. Things seemed to be failing miserably and he divested slowly from his holdings. He eventually sold the mansion and left. The crash of the stock market hit him hard. By 1936, the once wealthy oil and real estate man was hitting up friends for money. When he died, he was buried in a pauper's grave in San Francisco. And something that that indicates to us is not only does that say that this man had no money because he couldn't pay for his own burial, but where were his family and friends? Yeah, it seems like he 
ended up alienated from everything. Apparently so. And there's a lot of mystery in his life. There's a lot of details that are not there. This is what we could find. But I would assume if you end up buried in a pauper's grave that you have nothing. No friends, no family, no money. The next major owner of the property was a business partner of Rispin's, Robert Hayes Smith. He was a Bay Area speculator, and he paid about as much attention to the mansion as Rispin had before him. This beautiful property just continued to fall into neglectful disrepair. The Catholic Order of the Oblates of St. Joseph bought the property, and they used it as a convent until 1957. The mansion was just too cold for the nuns who had taken vows of poverty and wore sandals, and so the convent closed. There was also another issue. Rumors circulated about the mansion and nearby residents were curious, so they would peer in through the windows occasionally. It was unnerving to the nuns. The Rispin mansion continued to be an object of fascination after the closing of the convent, especially for young people. Teenagers have used breaking into the home as a rite of passage, vandalism has occurred, including graffiti, and there have been illegal squatters, particularly by hippies during the 60s. Your people, Denise. Hey, peace, man. (laughs) So groovy. The property is listed on the National Historic Register, and the city of Capitola's council purchased the mansion in 1986 for $1.3 million. There were plans to remodel the structure into a library, city hall, and community center, but those plans fell through in the early 90s. A private group headed by Dan Floyd and Ron Beardsley tried to develop plans to open Risbon Mansion as a bed and breakfast in 1998, but that failed as well. It is thought that the property continues to sit abandoned because construction costs are too much and environmental laws limit what can be done with the property. A fire ripped through the property as well, sealing its fate. The main expanse of tile roof and the floors below it were destroyed. And from what we read in newspapers, it seems that there are beautiful gardens on the property that were open to the public, but any recent pictures that I've seen show a chain link fence around everything, so I'm not sure that anybody can access the gardens that were there. I did read in several newspaper articles throughout the 90s that there were a lot of efforts to beautify the grounds and to build up these gardens. I don't really know what all the technical logistics are behind this. Maybe there's some politics involved. But it seems like such a beautiful property to just sit there with nobody doing anything with it. And the city paid $1.3 million for it. So it seems like a waste to just let this thing fall apart there. I, I don't understand why they can't get behind it and, I don't know, renovate the thing and, and get it built up. Maybe it's because it's in California and everything is just that more expensive there. But I just it just seems so weird that for decades this has just been sitting there while they're trying to figure out, well, let's try this plan. Nope, that's not going to work. Well, let's try this plan. Nope, that's not going to work. Well, some people have figured out how to live there because there are reports that the mansion is haunted. The setting seems perfect for ghost stories. The walls are grimy and stained. The interior is cold and dark. There are strange-looking pipes, bullet holes in the walls, and the stairs creak more than normal. There are also several burned-out areas. This place is just creepy. Two caretakers died of old age inside the home. The main apparition hanging out here belongs to Henry Respin. Although he never lived at the property, it is believed that it led to his ultimate demise. He's usually seen on the first floor wearing glasses. Now, another report that we saw features the spirit of a woman wearing a Victorian-era dress, and she's seen in an upstairs room looking for what people believe is a book. 
But if you will recall, construction didn't begin on this mansion until 1921. So I'm not sure how a woman in a Victorian dress is hanging out here unless somebody just was not in style. Or maybe she was just part of like before her time of the whole steampunk thing. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, Denise, we have a steampunk ghost. Woohoo! Woo, finally, we're going to get parachute <laughs> pants before we know it. There's another female scene, and this is a nun in full habit and black dress. Down in the basement, the disembodied barking of a dog is heard. It is described as angry. Now, there was a time when this was abandoned that the local SWAT team was using it for training. Makes sense, because you got this huge building that you can wander all around. I wonder if that's where some of the bullet holes are from. I'm not sure. So some are wondering if this barking is residual from that time during the training. The basement wine cellar harbors an evil spirit reportedly. Marianne Porter of the Santa Cruz Ghost Hunters got permission from the city to do an investigation in 2012. Marianne said, we actually cut off our investigation early because it just wasn't feeling safe any longer, as if we were making something rather angry. Ooh, I would have been out of there really fast. Doug Simmerly wrote of an experience he had back in 1979. The Rispin Mansion. I've never heard it called that. It was about four blocks behind my house when I was a child. We always called it Poor Claire's Retreat, as it was called when the nuns lived there. It was a very foreboding place, and no one would go near it when we were young. As a teenager, I talked some friends of mine into going there. There were four of us, all guys. We snuck over the fence. We peeled back a piece of plywood that was nailed over a window on the main, ground-level floor backside of the house, We had a flashlight, and it was very dark. We entered a small room and through a doorway, entering the main room in that part of the house. Vaulted ceilings, very large room. There was a fireplace with bookcases on either side of it. As my friends walked down the hallway, I remembered something I'd read somewhere and walked up to the bookcases. They slid open, and there was a small room behind each one of them, enough room to hide someone or something. Nothing in there but splashes of ink on one of the walls could not make anything of them. You know, what's really weird about that is I wonder what these small hidden rooms were for. If you're building this grand mansion to just wine and dine people, why would you have these small rooms? You almost wonder if there was other things going on or something. Anyway, we went over every inch of the place, very careful to damage nothing. In the basement, there was a red brick hallway, perfectly square and very long. At the end, it looked like a solid brick wall, sort of funny that it ended there. We rested up against the back wall, and it moved. There was a secret room behind it, about 12 foot by 8 foot. The wall was on a hinge, very strange. Our batteries were dead by now, so could not see a whole lot. It did not seem scary at all, though, just interesting. We did hear what sounded like footsteps a bunch of times, so thinking it was the guy watching the place, we were very quiet. Never saw anyone. Spooky. There was one room that seemed like it must have been the main quarters for Mother Superior or whoever. It had a white marble fireplace, very ornate decorative trim, and very large windows. There was a balcony overlooking the Soquel Creek facing what used to be a department store and the donut store that my grandparents used to run. This room sounds like the one where someone saw a lady in the black dress. I never saw anything, did not take pictures. It did feel icy cold in that room, and it was probably 75 to 80 degrees that day. We all felt things, heard things, but never saw anything. There was something in there, but what, I do not know. I went back quite a few times. It was a very cool place. Is Santa Cruz an area drenched in the supernatural? 
has the negative effects of the past carried over into the present, and now is that energy manifesting as hauntings? Is the Rispin Mansion one of Santa Cruz's many haunted locations? That is for you to decide. Well, like you said, we definitely want to make it out to Santa Cruz. Sasha did share with us that there is a walking ghost tour along the famous Santa Cruz Beach boardwalk that covers a long history of paranormal and interesting events. So we'll have to check that out as well. Absolutely. And I've always wanted to go to Santa Cruz ever since somebody told me that they they referred to it as like Boulder by the Sea. And I loved Boulder, Colorado. So if there's one right by the ocean, I would be very excited to see it. And she also shared that a lot of people, when they think of Santa Cruz, they think of Surf City, USA. A lot of surfing going on there, Beach Boy-esque type stuff. But she said they do have one of the largest pagan and Wicca populations in California right there. So that kind of adds to the overall aura. So thank you very much for suggesting this to us, Sasha. And she suggested several locations there. There is another one that is very well known there that we will be getting into in the future as well. On our next episode, we are going to be joined by one of our previous guests that we've had on, listener Amanda Prouty. She had suggested to us that we check out Hampton Court Palace. And this was one of the favorite places of Henry VIII. Yes, and so we will save you. We're not going to sing the song, but you all know who Henry VIII is, correct? (laughs) So we will be talking about him, his wives, the Tudors in general, and uh, some of the other characters that have lived here. Very haunted location, and Amanda herself had an experience there. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you next. We'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did hear from April Garassi. I know it's late, but I wanted to thank you guys for doing a podcast on my suggestion with Corrigidor. Remember that one back in the Philippines? The reason I think that you had a bit of trouble with the research on ghost sightings and other encounters is that most Filipinos prefer to say or talk about their encounters in their native tongue and are embarrassed if they can't express themselves in English. I have another suggestion on Filipino folklore and urban legends. Trust me, we have interesting ones. And if you need Filipino translation and or some want some encounters, I have a couple of stories. Another thing that I want to tell you guys is that I love the new format. You guys keep surprising me on how you can make a great show even better. I'm so excited in becoming an executive producer because I know you guys are worth the investment. And then, Denise, she went to the Winchester Mystery House, and she picked us up a little souvenir. Hmm. So So we have a surprise coming? We do. Very cool. Yay. We also heard from Ryan Taggart, and he said, the crew is great. And I agree with you on that, Ryan. Our crew is the best. I love the sense of community and how welcoming everyone is. I'm not a believer in ghosts, but I love the history side and the quirky facts. However, I do work in an old country manor that has rumors of many sightings. And working a few night shifts, I've heard a few bumps. Yeah, so Ryan, I don't know how long you will continue to say that you don't believe in ghosts. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think you've heard more bumps than I have. Yeah, no, I, and I, what I wrote back to him is I said, you know, we don't know what a ghost is or what's causing the bumps. So that's why we continue to be skeptical. So I understand saying I don't necessarily believe in ghosts because it could be something else, not necessarily ghost. Who knows? Some other kind of energy form. It could be an alien, a demon. (laughs) (laughs) We could get into all kinds of fun things around here. We do have a review over at iTunes from Superman 701. Not your typical history lesson. Five stars. The fabulous gals who head this podcast present factual stories with a supernatural twist. Interesting, friendly, and clean enough for family listening. Well, thank you, Superman. We appreciate that. 
<laughs> Whoever thought you'd be thinking Superman. <laughs> That's and, cool. Hey, thank you. And uh, we will make sure that the kryptonite stays away from you. Absolutely. Like you said, Denise, I absolutely adore our crew. They are such wonderful people. Everybody's so welcoming to each other and supports each other in all of their different endeavors. We always have great stuff that's posted in the Spooktacular crew. As a matter of fact, the most recent one that has gotten a lot of comments on it was there was one of these memes going around that you're at Walmart and you're purchasing three items to try to spook the cashier. What would those three items be? Okay, that's when I got a little bit concerned about our spectacular crew. <laughs> there are kind of people. At least they're my kind of people. <laughs> yeah, I love them. I'm sort of like the mom going, what? Or I guess I'm the auntie, right? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, saws, duct tape, and tarps. trash bags. <laughs> trash bags, tarps. <laughs> Denise, I've been in Walmart at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't think anything can shock the cashiers. Probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, April Garassi, Julia Miller, and Tim of the History Dweebs podcast. Thanks. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.